A couple of quick announcements before the latest episode starts. In case you don't know, I'm doing the first live news weekly at the Comedy Republic in Melbourne on the 19th of January 2024 at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at comedyrepublic.com.au and at thesamishah.com. That's T H E S A M I S H A H.com. If you join my Patreon at patreon.com slash samishah, you get access to a discount code. The show will definitely feature a live Newsweekly performance, possibly some new stand-up from me, a Q&A section for which you can email me your questions at samishah at gmail.com and other stuff that I haven't yet thought of. Also, no Newsweekly next week. I'm heading off to a much-needed holiday away from the internet and the news and anything other than sand and ocean. And if I don't get eaten by a shark, I'll see you at the live show on the 19th. The audio of that show will be released as an episode the next day, so if you miss out on the live show, don't feel too bad about it. Okay, that's all I can think of. Tickets are still available. Please get them. Now on with the show. Top Stories of the Week Epstein has a list that just keeps on giving. Also, John Howard gives oral. And Iran needs more friends. All that and more on Newsweek. Hello and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch your news in the headlines weekly. Conspiracy theories need to be less plausible news now. Let's start off the first News Weekly of 2024 with the single worst collection of sentences ever said by a newsreader in one go. Prince Andrew and the former president Bill Clinton have been named in newly released court documents relating to the sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. They include associates, friends and alleged victims of the disgraced billionaire who died in jail five years ago. The papers relate to a case that was brought against Epstein's associate, Ghislaine Maxwell. She's currently serving a 20-year jail sentence for child sex trafficking. Do you understand how insane that newsread is? Every sentence is worse than the one before, and each one contains some new stuff that if you said aloud five years ago, you'd be called a conspiracy theory nutjob. Prince Andrew and the former US President Bill Clinton, a convicted sex offender who was a billionaire, then he died under mysterious circumstances, then his partner Glane Maxwell, like that's a real name, is in jail for 20 years for child sex trafficking and that's just what's in the headline. It doesn't even mention Donald Trump's name is in the documents more than anyone else's, as is Jean-Luc Brunel, a French modeling agent suspected of scouting girls for Epstein who killed himself in a Paris jail in 2022 while awaiting trial for rape accusations. Oh, also named are Michael Jackson, the former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, Leslie Wexner, the billionaire who owns Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works, Glenn Dubin, another billionaire, and Alan Dershowitz, the celebrity lawyer who represented Ed Epstein. And those are the people named directly in the context of one accuser only, Virginia Roberts-Gouffray, 
who claims she was forced to have sex with the people I just listed when she was 17 years or younger, except for Michael Jackson, who turned her down, probably because she was too old. See, I told you, it's insane. Imagine someone coming up to you a few years ago and saying, did you know billionaires get together with former presidents and celebrities on a private island to rape teenagers? Your legitimate response would be to ask if they fly there by UFO while laughing maniacally. And it turns out the only part you're wrong about is the UFO. They actually flew there on a plane called, I shit you not, the Lolita Express. Okay, now let's keep a few things in mind. The case against Epstein revealed that the victims, some as young as 14, were paid to provide sexual services to him and his friends and to recruit other young girls to his circle of victims. Epstein's employees would also sexually abuse the young girls. He was facing charges for sex trafficking and conspiracy in July 2019 when one month later he died by suicide in New York federal jail. And sure, some people get all conspiracy theory crazy about the suicide only because of some minor irregularities. A source telling ABC News guards at the Metro Metropolitan Correctional Center broke protocol by not checking on him every 30 minutes. And Epstein was taken off suicide watch just six days after being found unresponsive with marks on his neck. Welcome back. New details today on the investigation into the jail cell death of Jeffrey Epstein. Questions surrounding his death are intensifying after important surveillance video was apparently lost. But, you know, maybe he did kill himself when the security guards weren't watching like they were supposed to be and the cameras weren't working like they were supposed to be and he wasn't on suicide watch like he was supposed to be. What's important to remember, however, is that just because people have been named as having associated with him doesn't mean they were directly involved in his child rape island. We have to remember innocent until proven guilty, or at least innocent until the guy who could prove you guilty commits suicide under questionable circumstances. Here's former U.S. federal prosecutor David Katz with UK's Times Radio. My understanding was that people like former President Clinton, uh, former U.N. Ambassador Bill Richardson, who are mentioned in there many times, they went on these humanitarian flights to Africa to distribute aid to, uh, you know, uh, make uh, uh, malaria drugs, all other sorts of things like that available. These were legitimate uh, flights. And the in-kind contribution that was made by Jeffrey Epstein was to provide the plane. So if you were on his plane, it could have meant that you were going on humanitarian missions. It could have also meant that you made a side trip down there to this so-called sex island um, in the Caribbean. But where are the flight logs that back that, that up? The people who are trying to make hay out of it, they, they need to come up with some real evidence. And that's true. There's no flight logs to prove Clinton flew to Epstein's 72-acre island called Little St. James in the U.S. Virgin Islands. All we have is hearsay like this. So there is also a deposition from someone called Joanna Schoberg, who was also hired as a sort of assistant to Epstein and then later was drawn into giving him massages. Uh, she was hired while she was a college student. And she says that Epstein told her that Clinton likes them young. Which, like I said, is hearsay. And now you've heard what Joanna Schoberg had said. Under oath about Clinton liking them young. Although we don't know what young means. Does it mean 19, which is how Leslie Milvey was when she claims Bill Clinton sexually assaulted her three times in 1980? Or 22, which is how old Monica Lewinsky was when she had sexual relations with President Clinton? So, like I said, we have to be careful what aspersions we cast on people without the evidence to prove it.
For example, even though Donald Trump is mentioned several times in the documents, there's no evidence he raped anyone underage while with Epstein either. Sure, he did say on the record, quote, I've known Jeff for 15 years, terrific guy, he's a lot of fun to be with, it is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do and many of them are on the younger side, no doubt about it, Jeffrey enjoys his social life. And sure, there's that time Trump walked into a mistine USA dressing room where 15-year-old girls were changing. Or like when he called his daughter Ivanka a piece of ass and asked if others think my daughter's hot, she's hot, right? Quote, unquote. But that's just a coincidence, which we should remember is also the case with Alan Dershowitz. Sure, there's this accusation against him. Roberts, one of dozens of underage girls allegedly recruited by convicted sex offender Epstein, also released new photos, including this one she says was taken by Epstein when she was about 15. In the new affidavit, she claims Dershowitz had sex with her six times at Epstein's residences, as well as on his jet in private island. But it's just an allegation, and nothing he has done himself can make it more likely to be true. You know, other than this. Alan Dershowitz, right? Oh, he yes. uh, wrote a 1997 op-ed. It's now resurfaced. And in that op-ed, he actually argued that we need to lower the age of consent. And now, a couple days ago, he doubled down on these comments on Twitter. And here's the thing. If you think this whole conspiracy theory stuff is too emotionally and intellectually exhausting, because Jesus Christ, is everyone really that evil? And do the rich and famous really just spend their time sexually abusing innocent people? Then I'm about to make your day a whole lot worse. But one is quite familiar to us in Britain, the late Professor Stephen Hawking. Epstein writes to his partner in crime, Ghislaine Maxwell, that she can offer money to friends of Virginia Dufresne if they can prove that allegations against Hawking are false. This is all from an email written in 2015 where the financier suggested that Miss Dufresne had claimed Professor Stephen Hawking participated in an underage orgy. There are photos of Stephen Hawking on Epstein's Caribbean island from back in 2006. There you go. Try bringing that little anecdote up at parties and see how everyone else looks at you. Documents of mass embarrassment news now. Australia's involvement in the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq was very much like most of Australia's involvements in international conflicts in the last few decades. Entirely pointless, utterly useless and done to make everyone feel embarrassed about what a pathetic sycophant we are of America. And now it turns out Australia did it all because the Prime Minister at the time, John Howard's duotone eyebrows, told Australians they were doing it and that's really all he needed to do. The annual release of previously undisclosed cabinet papers has highlighted the Howard government's internal deliberations shaping its decision to join the US invasion of Iraq. And by internal deliberations, he means there weren't any. The cabinet papers reveal on March 18, 2003, Prime Minister Howard informed them that very shortly, US President George W. Bush would be issuing a final ultimatum to Iraq's leader. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. A request from President Bush had arrived that morning that Australia helped to disarm Iraq of its weapons of mass destruction. Weapons, the cabinet noted, were one of the greatest threats to Australia's security at that time. Humanitarian concerns were another justification. ADF deployments were agreed to, and Australia officially joined the US-led Coalition of the Willing. You know what's missing from that timeline of events? A formal cabinet submission setting out a full analysis of the risks. 
It turns out the Howard government took what he called the most controversial foreign policy decision taken by my government in the almost 12 years it held office, quote-unquote, without any detailed analysis or consideration. This despite the fact that hundreds of thousands of people took the streets of Australian cities to protest against the Iraq war, learning a lesson in government indifference that the current Gaza ceasefire protests are still figuring out. At the time, Andrew Wilkie resigned from the Office of National Assessments in protest of the impending war, a move that is known outside Canberra as standing up for one's principles and in Canberra as strange behaviour that no one has ever seen before and cannot be explained. The documents that were released on New Year's Day 2024 are a key insight into Australia's role in the mass destruction of a Middle Eastern population on spurious claims of hidden weapons that resulted in huge loss of life, a decades-long crisis of rising terrorism, huge refugee populations, and the destabilizing of the entire region, if not the world. I'm talking about Iraq, by the way. The ones about Gaza won't come out until 2043. That is, if they're released on time at all, which might not happen if we have a liberal government by then again. But some of the documents have been withheld from the public because the previous government failed to hand them over with the rest of the records. The 78 files won't be released until the archives are given enough time to analyse the contents. Anthony Albanese says an independent review will be conducted to ensure transparency around the incident. Australians have a right to know the basis upon which Australia went to war in Iraq. My government believes that this mistake must be corrected, that the National Archives of Australia should release all the documentation. It turns out the Morrison government didn't hand over the documents when they were supposed to, although they're blaming being busy with COVID-19 for the mistake which apparently is fine as an excuse when the government forgets to hand over historically important war documents, but not when I forget to file my tax returns on time. To be fair to Morrison, this is why he should have appointed himself cabinet historian also. In the years since the invasion of Iraq and its after-effects, which experts say resulted in the deaths of over 210,000 civilians, or 70 9-11s for the Americans listening, John Howard has had time to reflect on his decision to support the invasion so unquestioningly. If you knew then what you know now, would you have made the same decision? <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's an impossibly hypothetical question, Troy. All I can say is that I do not regret the decision. It was the right one given the information available to us at the time it was taken. John Howard there, showing the red armband approach to history, which is when the white armband is soaked in Iraqi blood. The ICJ can't host a radio show on ABC anymore. News now. According to Gaza's health ministry, the death toll in Gaza has now crossed 22,400, or 7.5 9-11s. However, the biggest news in the last few days isn't the 32 people killed in Khan Yunus in Israeli bombings, nor the arrival of winter, which has heightened the humanitarian crisis, nor is it even the ongoing attacks on the West Bank, where 326 people have been killed since October 7th and over 5,000 arrested. No, all of that is just general background noise. A kind of ambient screaming and crying that is the wallpaper against which new developments can be posed. Developments like this one. We start with a developing story this hour that Hamas says its deputy political leader, Salah al-Aruri, has been killed in a blast in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. Local media have described the explosion as an Israeli drone attack on the Hamas office in the south of the city. 
Reports say five other people were killed in the blast. Video footage shows a car in flames and damage to buildings in a busy residential area, which is known as a Hezbollah stronghold. Israel hasn't taken responsibility for the attack, which is that cool thing Israel does whenever it does a targeted killing, where it kind of gives a wry smile and goes, eh, who knows how these things happen? And everyone goes, damn it, Israel is way cooler when it's doing shit like this instead of, you know, bombing refugee camps. The attack is notable for its precision. Israel allegedly killed the man they wanted to kill without, you know, blowing up whole neighborhoods, displacing hundreds of people and saying things like all Lebanese are animals while doing it. Here's UK's Major General Charlie Herbert on Sky News making just that observation. So there are significant differences, but I think it is a really good question. Could Israel have conducted a campaign in Gaza that was more precise, used greater distinction, perhaps greater legality over a longer period to achieve the same effect but without killing so many thousands of civilians. And I think the question there is, is undoubtedly they could have done. Major General Charlie Herbert there coming out as a Hamas supporter because that's what anyone who questions Israel obviously is at all times. So why then, if Israel can conduct the war with less civilian casualties, isn't it? Probably because large parts of the Israeli government and IDF think very much like the religious extremist Israeli ambassador to the UK, Zippy Hotovelli. One of the things we realise that every school, every mosque, every second house has an access to tunnel. So this is, and, and of course immunity. that's an argument for destroying so, the whole of Gaza, every single building in it. So do you have another solution how to destroy the underground tunnel city, that this is the place where the terrorists hide? That sound you just heard is an evidence management software somewhere in South Africa gaining a new entry because... South Africa has filed a case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, accusing it of genocide. The filing is a major challenge to Israel, even though any ruling is unlikely to have any effect on the Israeli government's goals. Even the US has rebuked the filing. We find this uh, submission meritless, counterproductive, and uh, completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. US National Security Council spokesman John Kirby there, admitting he hasn't read the submission at all. Because if he had, he'd read about things like this. Two of the Israeli government's senior ministers pushing for the resettlement of Palestinians from Gaza and for Jewish settlers to return to the enclave. Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir became the latest to echo the calls made a day earlier by Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich. We must promote a solution to encourage the emigration of the residents of Gaza. This is a correct just, moral, and humane solution. I call on the Prime Minister and the new Foreign Minister. This is an opportunity to plan an immigration project. The two far-right nationalist politicians live in settlements in the occupied West Bank, considered illegal under international law. It's not just terrorism sympathizer Ben Gavir. Finance Minister Smotrich, who has previously advocated for a shoot-to-kill policy for the military when dealing with Palestinians throwing stones, and said about the 2023 Huwara rampage, where Israeli settlers attacked a Palestinian village and injured over 100 people, that, quote, I believe that the village of Huwara should be wiped out, I believe that the state of Israel should do so, and not, God forbid, ordinary individuals, end quote, 
when speaking to an Israeli radio station this week, he said, quote, if we act strategically correctly, there will be immigration and we will live in the Gaza Strip. We will not allow a situation where two million people live there. If there are if there are a hundred to two hundred thousand Arabs in Gaza, all the talk about the day after will be different. They want to leave. They have been living in the ghetto for 75 years and are in need. End quote. See, one of the definitions of genocide is forced transfer of a population, which is why examples like this are bolstering South Africa's case. And it's not just a few statements of members of the democratically elected Israeli government. It's also things like the Times of Israel revelation this week that Israel is in talks with the Congo on a Gaza, quote, voluntary migration, end quote, plan, which is why people are starting to notice who isn't condemning all of these statements. The fact that it's so damaging to Israel, the fact that it's damaging to Israel in this ICJ action, there have been calls for these politicians to um, stop saying these things. But of course, that hasn't come from the prime minister yet. It's starting to become obvious now why in 1996 the US president vetoed legislation to impose sanctions on apartheid South Africa because it was, quote, meritless and counterproductive, end quote. Meanwhile, sticking with conflict in the region, a bomb blast in Iran left many wondering if Israel was involved. Well, more than 100 people have been killed and scores of others injured in two explosions in southeastern Iran, near the grave of a top Revolutionary Guards commander. State television says the blast occurred in quick succession in the city of Kerman during a ceremony to mark the anniversary of the killing of Qasem Soleimani. He was Iran's most powerful military commander and was killed in 2020 by a US airstrike in Iraq. Local officials say two bags containing explosives were detonated by remote control at the entrance to the burial site. After the attack, Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei vowed a harsh response as soon as he could figure out who was to blame. Was it Israel sending a message to Iran for its support of Hamas and Hezbollah? Was it the MEK, a leftist terrorist group committed to overthrowing the theocratic government? Was it the Taliban, with whom Iran has a water dispute? Was it Sunnis and Kurds from Iraq, who Qasem Soleimani's Shia groups attacked when he was alive? Was it a Yemeni loyalist faction getting back at Iran for backing the Houthis? The answer, it turns out, was none of the above. The claim of responsibility came on the Islamic State group's Telegram account. ISIS! Remember them? They're fighting Iran now. Which, you know, the enemy of my enemy is... Also, it turns out, an enemy? Maybe Iran might need to start thinking about having a few less enemies so it can focus on this one. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. So, like I said up top, January 19th is a live News Weekly show. Ticket sales have been great already, by the way. Way more than I thought there would be. I thought there'd be one ticket sold. Um, but it turns out there have been quite a few. So that's wonderful. There's still some left. So if you are in Melbourne on the 19th at 7pm, please do come by. I would really love to have an audience there. We're going to record it. It'll be fun. We just do some crazy stuff. Who knows? Um, like I also said, by the way, in case you've forgotten, next week there is no news weekly so you know don't worry about that if you don't find anything in your feed but i'll be back the week after of course with the actual live news weekly episode otherwise please meanwhile head over to the patreon i just put up a whole bunch of new book reviews over there uh, also head over to itunes if you have the time if you're so inclined i know i get embarrassed asking about this stuff and it's very tiresome i understand but it helps with the ratings and the visibility of the podcast and you know if you go to itunes and leave it a five-star rating and review that'll make it look good if you can't be asked to do that and you're still listening to this by the way if you haven't tuned out already then um tell your friends 
just tell people word of mouth helps more than anything else that I've found with this podcast and I can't believe we crossed 150,000 downloads which means over 150,000 times news weekly episodes have been heard which is bananas when I think about it so it means a lot to me um, I'm gonna go now on a nice little holiday and I'll see you at the live news weekly show on the 19th where we will punch the news in the headlines weekly weekly